David's eldest son Absalom has avenged his sister's rape by killing her rapist, their own half-brother Amnon. For this he was shunned by his father David and lived in exile. Eventually allowed back into the family, he took matters into his own hands and became the people's prince, an accessible royal with a focus on the well-being of his people. Now Absalom has gone one step further. Rallying his troops, he has travelled to Hebron and declared himself king of Israel. David has assembled his own army and, thanks to an underground intelligence network in Jerusalem, he is one step ahead of his renegade son. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible Episode 74, Ten Widows. first time with the Holy Bible podcast, you've certainly picked your moment. The Bible isn't always as high octane as this. In fact, for a book that is famous for its stories, only around 25% of the Bible is actually story. The rest is poetry, letters, legislation and prophecy. Much of it is buried in that it has failed to impact popular culture and rarely even makes it into church services. Still, this podcast leaves no page unturned, even the bits that are a lot less page-turning than the second book of Samuel. As for me, I'm neither a priest nor a theologian. I'm an advertising creative director, so don't expect anything too highbrow. And we can argue forever whether any of this is real or not. In my experience, those kind of arguments don't really go anywhere, so I'd much rather simply focus on the Bible as a book and leave the preaching and the debate to other people. Ready? Let's get back to the imminent showdown between David and his son Absalom. The two armies meet in a forested area east of the River Jordan. As battlefields go, a forest is a tough one, and with David now back at full strength with a large army behind him, Absalom must be wondering if the opportunistic ambush suggested by Ahithophel in the previous episode wasn't the better option. David's army is by far the stronger, and 20,000 of Absalom's men die in the skirmish. The book adds that the forest kills more men than the sword, possibly due to wild animals, poisonous plants and animal traps. Absalom is riding a mule and encounters some of David's men deep in the woods. Unfortunately for him, his abundant hair gets caught in the dense branches and he is left dangling from an oak tree as his animal trots away without him. A message is sent to David's army commander, Joab, that Absalom has been left a sitting target. The commander is astounded that his soldier didn't kill Absalom there and then, earning himself a cash reward and a promotion in the army. However, the troops all heard David's request as they left Mahanaim that no one should harm Absalom, and the man tells Joab that 100 times the money wouldn't have persuaded him to go against the king's order and lay a hand on his son. 
The man adds cynically that Joab would have been the first to distance himself from the crime had the man followed through and killed Absalom. Possibly thinking more about national security than his king's interpersonal relationships, Joab arms himself with three javelins, rides to where Absalom is hanging and runs him through, leaving ten of his men to beat what's left of the prince's life out of him. Once David's son is dead, Joab sounds the trumpet to end the rout and Absalom's corpse is dumped unceremoniously in a pit in the forest with rocks piled on top of it. With their leader dead, the rest of the Israelites flee to their homes and the threat to David's crown is over. The book reminds readers that Absalom has no sons to keep his memory alive, just a single monument set up by himself. It's a victory but a hollow one. David's unbreakable loyalty to the most feckless of his children risks undermining his credibility to his men and jeopardises their allegiance to him. Zadok the priest's son Ahimaz asks Joab if he can take the news of the victory to David, but the commander is reticent, knowing that David will not thank anyone who tells him that his beloved son is dead. Ahimaz is adamant. To him, this victory is too good to keep quiet about, and he possibly cannot imagine how David might take it in any other way than joyfully. Instead, Joab sends a soldier from Cush, assuring Ahimaz again that there will be no reward for bringing his message to the king. It's interesting that the man sent by Joab to take the news to David is from Cush, the corner of Africa that contains Sudan, Ethiopia and Kenya, as this region still produces some of the world's fastest distance runners. The priest's son refuses to take no for an answer, takes a shortcut and arrives in the vicinity of David's palace before the other man. He is spotted by a watchman and as he is running alone, David assumes that he must be bringing good news. When he reaches the city, Ahimaz bows down before the king and praises God for delivering him from all those who hoped to harm him. Perhaps wanting to spare David's grief, Ahimaz is economic with the truth. He can't say for certain what happens to Absalom, as there was so much confusion. Soon afterwards, the African messenger arrives with the information that, thanks to God, David has been vindicated and his enemies have been defeated. Unlike Ahimaz, he has no qualms in telling the king about Absalom's fate. To him, David's reprobate son should be held up as an example of what happens to people who cross their leader. David is grief-stricken, crying out that he wished he had died in his son's place. There is no accounting for a father's love. Amnon was a rapist and Absalom tried to steal the kingdom. It must be profoundly dispiriting for David's army, who lurch from euphoric celebration straight into mourning. In a surreal post-battle scenario for a victorious army, soldiers creep around the city in silence as their leader weeps aloud for his dead son. Enough is enough for Joab. 
he marches into David's house and tells him that he has humiliated his men who have just saved the lives of his wives, children and concubines. Summing up the situation, he yells to the king, you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. David is acting as if he would rather Absalom had lived at the expense of the lives of his valiant soldiers, he says. If David keeps this up for much longer, Joab warns, he won't have any men to lead and this will be a disaster worse than any he has yet faced. Contrite and finally pulling himself together, David puts in an appearance at Mahanaim city gates, a gesture that proves enough to keep his men loyal. Meanwhile, the Israelites who sided with Absalom escaped to their homes and the fate of Joab who delivered the death blow to Absalom is placed by the king in a metaphorical box marked to be dealt with later. The Israelites who were once loyal to Absalom now want to know why David doesn't ride back into town to rule them. It seems absurd to them that he should still hide out in the country when Absalom is dead. The suggestion is that there is no great hunger for David to return as king. For many, he is still second choice behind his dead son. For his part, David is affronted that his own tribe of Judah has dragged its heels in showing him support. Rather than rally around him against Absalom, many from his tribe were at the epicentre of the rebellion. He sends Zadok's two sons to ask Judah's elders why this is, and in an unexpected twist, he orders Absalom's military commander Amasa to replace Joab as head of Israel's army. Judah's leaders appear unanimous in wanting David to be their king again, and clearly encouraged, he travels back as far as the Jordan. There follows a comical amount of what can only be described as ass-saving, as various figures loyal to Absalom now come to grovel at David's feet. A delegation of Judah's great and good meet the king at the ford at Gilgal to escort him back across the river. First to ingratiate himself is Shimei, the clown who hurled insults at David and his bodyguards as they left Jerusalem. He brings with him his entire household of servants and sons, plus a thousand Benjamites, and throws himself at the king's feet. With him is Zeba, the slippery character who accused King Saul's grandson Mephibosheth of siding with Absalom in the previous episode, and who now takes the first opportunity he can to get on side with David. Zeba brings his 15 sons and 20 servants, and both men put their entire entourage at David's disposal. Shimei prostrates himself before David, begging him to blot their last encounter from his memory. He did a bad thing, he says, and claims to be the first of the tribes of Joseph to come down and meet him. This is not even true, as Shimei is from Benjamin, not Manasseh or Ephraim, the tribal lands given to the descendants of Joseph's sons. It's possible that Shimei claims to be the first from the tribes of Joseph to deflect from his central role in the rebellion. The suggestion is that the power of Manasseh and Ephraim's agenda to oppose David turned his head. Abishai, who was among the men pelted with rocks thrown by Shimei, is less easily won over and wants the man who he refers to as this traitor dead possibly out of affection for his dead son or simply wanting to unite Israel while making as few enemies as possible, David announces that Shimei will live. 
At this point, Mephibosheth is given the chance to explain himself to David. This is the disabled young man who David raised in the palace like his own son, and who apparently supported Absalom in the hope that Saul's dynasty might be restored. Mephibosheth, which incidentally is one of the hardest biblical names to pronounce, wants nothing more than for David to know that his loyalty has never wavered. According to the book, he is a mess and hasn't taken care of his personal hygiene since David left Jerusalem. Mephibosheth tells the king that he had planned to join him. It appears that the donkeys laden with treats that Ziba brought to David in the previous episode might have been Mephibosheth's idea, but Ziba rode off without him and, being unable to walk, Saul's grandson was powerless to follow. Mephibosheth feels slandered by Ziba, he says, and tells David that the king is like God's angel and can respond according to how he sees the truth. After all, any descendant of Saul deserves to be dead, yet David let him eat at his table. As such, he believes that he doesn't deserve to appeal to the king for mercy. Ziba neither meets a grisly end, nor is Mephibosheth completely exonerated. Instead, his king and benefactor gives him the benefit of the doubt, restoring half of the possessions that were taken from him as punishment for his disloyalty and given to Ziba. Mephibosheth doesn't help his case by telling David that Ziba can keep it all, and that having the connection with David back is all that matters, suggesting that there might be a guilty conscience at play here. Before the journey home begins, a wealthy old Canaanite called Barzillai, who has provided amply for David in Mahanaim, is invited to come back to Jerusalem as the king's guest. Barzillai politely declines. The excitement of the city is wasted on a man of 80, he says. Still, he agrees to cross over the river, then return, but sends his son, Kimham, to do whatever David needs. Kissing Barzillai goodbye, David crosses over the Jordan with all Judah's troops and the half of Israel's who are still loyal to him. Internecine rivalries still manage to raise their head. Israel is unhappy that Judah is playing such a central role in the restoration of David, especially as they outnumber Judah's men ten to one. Judah's response is simple. They are family and haven't benefited in any way from offering their help. Judah argues its case more forcefully than the other tribes, and David certainly has his work cut out if he has any hope of smoothing things over. Just when it feels safe to go back to the palace, one rebellious Israelite decides that David should not be Israel's king. Unsurprisingly, the rebel who opposes David's rule is from Saul's tribe of Benjamin. Possibly feeling snubbed by David's apparent preference for Judah, Sheba blasts on a trumpet and announces his intention to rebel, urging the whole of Israel to get behind him. The nation then divides along pretty much the same tribal lines as before, with Judah out on its own rallying around David and the rest of the tribes throwing in their lot with yet another pretender. David's first act when he returns to his palace is to rehouse the concubines who were all forced to sleep with Absalom. A line has been crossed and, possibly seeing the women as contaminated, David orders them to live out the rest of their lives shut away as perpetual widows. 
With his rebellion picking up traction, Sheba begins to pose a genuine threat to the monarchy. David instructs Amasa, his new military chief, to bring him all Judah's fighting men so that they can crush the rebels by force. When the deadline given by David to begin the fight back passes and Amasa still hasn't shown up with any soldiers, David begins to worry that Sheba might do even more damage to him than Absalom. Tired of waiting, he instructs his two nephews, Abishai and Joab, to take the rest of the royal bodyguard and go out and find Sheba themselves. When Amasa finally puts in an appearance, Joab makes the executive decision that too many chiefs is a bad thing for the army. He makes as if to kiss Amasa hello, but as he greets him, he grabs his beard with his right hand, then stabs him in the belly with his left. Leaving Amasa dead by the roadside, Joab and Abishai continue their pursuit of Sheba. A soldier near the corpse orders anyone loyal to David to keep marching, but realising that a dead general in a pool of his own blood is both a distraction and a deterrent to continue the pursuit, he drags Amasa's body into a field and throws a cloak over it. Meanwhile, Sheba passes through his own country and amasses further followers. The men march with him into the city of Abel Beth Maka, some 15 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Troops loyal to David construct a siege ramp and begin battering the city walls to break through them. At this point, a local woman inside the city asks for a meeting with Joab. The woman tells the commander that the city is a peaceful place, full of faithful people, and that it is like a mother in Israel. By this, she means that many smaller towns depend on it for survival. The woman doesn't want the city to be destroyed, as Israel would be losing people who deserve to live in this land as much as anyone. Joab is fully behind the woman. He doesn't want mass bloodshed any more than she does. All he wants is Sheba, and he'll take his siege and his army away. Readers are not told what the sequence of events is behind Abel Beth Maka's walls, but the rebel chief is swiftly decapitated and his head thrown over the battlements. In Old Testament times, the city of Abel Beth Maka has a reputation for wisdom and is a place where people come in order to resolve disputes, making it an appropriate location for ending Sheba's rebellion. Triumphant, with Sheba's head in his hands, Joab blasts the trumpet and while his men disperse to their homes, he returns to Jerusalem. It's been an adventure for sure, and most of David's energy is going into keeping his crown rather than ruling his kingdom. With Absalom dead and Sheba's rebellion over, he might be forgiven for thinking he can relax and rule the nation which he believes God personally chose him to reign over. But no. Possibly seeing that Israel's internal weakness makes for an opportune time to attack, David's perennial enemy the Philistines invade yet again. It was a Philistine giant, Goliath, who David defeated before he was king. It was a Philistine army that defeated Saul and killed David's closest friend, Jonathan. Now the Dagon worshippers are back, and one of them is about to run at David in the midst of the battle, javelin in hand, ready to end the reign of Israel's second king. The second book of Samuel's season finale is next.
Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Just search Holy Bible Podcast. And if you like reading as much as you do listening, Snakes and Angels, a secular walk through the first five books of the Bible is available on Amazon. Thank you very much and see you next time. Bye.